Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Andrew Conrad. I'm a pastor here. I would love to meet you today uh, or someday. Um, man, I, for worship for me today, this morning when we were singing together, was fantastic hearing your voices. But it was also fantastic knowing what God's doing because I don't know that better songs could have pick, been picked. And I didn't pick them. But like, it is so like into what we're doing today. The breath of God, the Yahweh, um, the everything, with your everything that has breath and loving God. Uh, oh man, I'm excited. I don't know. So now I have to control myself and just like, stay in your lane. Okay. Um, we're in this series. Okay, so Moses, here's what's happening. Moses is leading Israel through covenant renewal. Um, as they enter the promised land. So renewal, when you're going through renewal, it includes like reordering your life, right? And reorganizing by love for God and love for your neighbor. And so one of the ways we're going to do this in the series that we're doing is looking at the Ten Commandments. Now I'm really curious. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Now you don't have to do this out loud. This isn't a test for you. I'm not asking you to write it down and turn it in. But could you name each of the Ten Commandments? Well, just think in your head. Think like how many can you get like? What do you get? I don't know. Can you do the first one? How about the first one? Because that's what we're doing today. The first one, the title of the sermon today is No Other Gods, Blueprints for a Good Life. So hear this. This is the word of the Lord. It's Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. When I say that, we're going to start something new because I want us to impress. This has been struck on me by, by Marty Kate some and just saying, when we read God's word, we want to recognize this is God's word. So when, after I read the word and I say, this is the word of the Lord, you, the people, say, thanks be to God. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord. Do you remember in the early 2000s when there was this... Um, it was all over the news, this public kind of debate and lawsuits that were happening related to the Ten Commandments being in public places like schools and courthouses, particularly in Kentucky and Alabama, I think it was. Do you remember this? And, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court ruled that it was, that they upheld the, the suit and said it was unconstitutional because it was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. I don't know if you remember that or not. Kids? You won't remember that because you weren't alive. The Ten Commandments used to be posted in different places, and they're not anymore, okay? So um, that's why I'm curious, how many do you know? Like, they're not around, and if we don't read them every week, or you hearing them, like, do you know what they are? Our postmodern culture has moved. So modern, modernity said, okay, everything's relative. You just, you know, there, there might be right and wrong, but that's relative to you, and so you could be moral or immoral. But now postmodern culture just says there's no such thing as absolutes at all to be discovered. There's, there's no truth, only your truth. Morality is simply a social construct. And so in the United States, we've, we're undergoing this big change in postmodernity to say there is really no truth that just gets invented um, by whatever the, the latest ideas are. And so we're living through this experiment this social experiment of promoting our own truth, living by whatever you think is good at the time. And it's almost universally accepted, except for when it's not, and then you get canceled, because we can't really do this 
doesn't work in life, but that's what we're trying to do. And so far, the data isn't good. Like, right, we, I don't, it would be hard to say that society's getting better when crime is up, when mental health crisis is greater than ever, when suicides are spiking, when the Surgeon General of the United States warns that we have a loneliness epidemic. Like, how could we argue that the, the social health, the mental health, the, the life of our society is actually getting better? Now, there are some ways that it is, right? But it hasn't all of a sudden just made it like, Wow, look how wonderful everything is. And here's what happens is when you as an individual or we as a society become the creators of our own truth, what we have done is broken the first commandment by becoming our own God. And what we are to, to do then, while it might be easy to point the finger at others and say, well, yeah, they, they do that all the time, right? The truth is we have to look at our own heart and go, but how do I desire to be my own God? How am I doing this? Do I want control and power? Do I chase after other things to satisfy my ultimate desires? Maybe fill in this blank. Like, what rescue, or if, if this would just rescue me from fill in the blank, whatever's going to rescue you from whatever the thing is, is that not kind of like a God? And so what, what we're hearing here in the Ten Commandments is this. If, if you want the good life, then the place to start is to have no other gods. No other gods. The first point today in the sermon, and we'll go through this, is the commandment, this commandment reveals the character of God. And I want to talk to you about this in two ways, the character of God. There's so much more that can be talked about, but just in two ways today, and it is this, that God knows you personally. In verse 6, it says... And you don't have to put this on the screen, but it says, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. And then it says, you shall have no other gods. Okay, people, this is not southern language. This isn't, in this instance, it's not y'all. It's not you all should do this. It's you singular. What is being said, what Moses is saying is to the whole crowd gathered, is that God brought you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt. And you, 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 and you shall have no other gods. I am your God. Each and every one of you. And so he's saying to all of Israel collectively, but to you individually, because God knows you personally. God is, is magnificent and transcendent, but he knows you personally. Now that's both comforting and terrifying. Because he knows everything about you. You can't hide anything from him. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 uh, tells us this. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Like, oh, what? I don't want him to know me that well. But he does. He knows you personally. And the second thing I want you to get today about God and his character is while that he knows you personally, God also requires your loyalty. He requires your loyalty in first things and in all things. Where do we see this? We see this because God is the first thing. He is the greatest, the goat. Deuteronomy 6, 4. So right after this, right after chapter 5, we get into Deuteronomy 6 because 6 comes after 5. Good. Okay. So chapter 6, right after the Ten Commandments, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And that word one is only, alone. The one true God, the one and only, the greatest of all time, is what is being said. This is the Shema the Jewish people say. The Lord our God is one. He is the greatest. And then he goes on in verse 5. Put that on there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So he's not only the first thing, but you are to love him with all your being in everything. He demands your loyalty in that way. The heart in, in this verse where it says the heart refers to in the Hebrew language, that refers to like your will or your choices, your actions, like what your, what your motivation and you're doing, right? And then the soul, with loving with your soul, that word is nephesh, which is the breath of God that puts life into beings. So when he makes Adam and Eve, and it says he breathed into them the breath of life, he breathed in them the nephesh. And so your spirit is your very breath of life. The breath. And then what, and then Jeremy put Spurgeon's quote up there. And then what, it's the Lord your God. The Lord is the personal name of God. When you see that capitalized in scripture, it's Yahweh. Which you can only say by using your breath. And so God is saying, your very life that I have given you, your very breath when you say my name is going to remind you that your life comes from me. And no other. And your strength. Now, if you're astute, you may know that Jesus talks about this and says you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you're like, why did Jesus get it wrong? Jesus didn't get it wrong. In Hebrew, strength is not just physical strength, but mental. It's body and mind. It's your body. Body and mind together. And so Jesus is just saying both of those words in Greek to comprehend the Hebrew word. So what's being said here is you are in your totality to love God with entire loyalty, with your heart, your soul, and your strength. He doesn't want a piece of you. He wants all of you. Now, this is really hard for us to do because we are people of the phone. We are people of apps. And you just, you know, you look on your phone and like here's first page of apps, second page of apps, third page of apps, fourth page of apps, fifth page of apps, sixth page of apps, seventh page of apps. Done. <laughs> Jeremy, that would require a whole lot of organization if I was going to put all those into folders. And the truth would still be that while there'd be less folders, there'd still be the same amount of apps in them. We are people of apps, and this is what we do. I need a little something in life. I'm going to get that app. I'm going to get the app for that. And the thing you want to do in life a lot that you're tempted to do with God is to say, God, I, I need that app. Where's the God app? I'm going to put that God app in my life. I need him as an app. And God's saying, uh-uh. You've got this backwards. I am not your app. I am the control center of your life. I am not the app that you get to silence notifications of when you don't want to hear or delete when you're tired of. No, I am the greatest of all time. And I require your loyalty in all ways in every area of life. I'm not an app to be used. I have something far more beautiful than that, is what God is saying to the people. One of the things that I need to ask you about this text, so we're gonna, now I'm going to make you think a little bit with me, okay? Where, um, 
in this text that we read, Deuteronomy 5, Ten Commandments, okay, where is Israel hearing this? Where are they geographically or in history, in, in time too? You know, what, what are they doing, right? Because there's two times the Ten Commandments are given. The first one is in Exodus chapter 20. That's right after they have come out of where? Egypt, okay? The second one is in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Moses is, Moses is republishing the law, retelling. Why? Because what has happened in between? They have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They are now positioned. Where are they? Getting ready to enter the promised land. And Moses is saying, you need to know these. You need to know this is your God. What Moses is saying to the people as they're getting ready to enter the land is, have you learned the lessons of the wilderness? Where God said, okay, you're going to walk with me in the wilderness through 40 years. And you're going to learn to trust me with stuff that falls from the sky that you can eat. Are you going to do that? Because if you can't trust me, when you enter the land of the Canaanites that have just as many gods as the Egyptians, the place you left, you're going to struggle to know that I'm the one true God. And you're going to go through a wilderness to learn to trust me. And it requires us then to ask questions of ourselves like, will you trust God? Will I have enough? Will that stuff that falls from the sky called manna, that's like a honey-coated cracker or whatever it is, is that going to be enough for me? God, are you enough for me? And what he's telling the people of Israel is that I am the one true God. No other gods. And you will have to learn to trust me. And they repeatedly have to go through exercises of, okay, can we trust you, God? Several tests that they go through. Most of you are probably thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have this problem. I don't have all the gods, or the pantheon of gods of Egypt or Canaan or whatever you want to say. I believe there's one true God. That's why I'm here in church. Really? You think you got this under control? I mean, con consider a few ways you may, in today's culture, have other gods. Um, I love being outdoors. Man, I love seeing the beauty of nature and taking pictures of it and being in it. Um, watching sunrises, sunsets. Um, it's awesome. I, today, one of the things in our culture, and maybe even in some of our own hearts, is that we become worshipers of creation rather than the creator. It's certainly in our culture. We are a very spiritual culture in the, in the United States, even though not mostly Christian, very spiritual. People are seeking all kinds of spiritual things don't we worship gods of harvest and fertility, money, sex, power? Seems like we do to me. Ah, consider these words from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter uh, 8, verses 16 to 18. So Ezekiel's talking about what the Lord is showing him. He says, he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, okay? So you go into the temple and you're in this outer courts area, and there's the portico where you enter and the altar. There, there were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple, okay? So their backs are at the temple, and their faces toward the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Turn their back on the temple of God, they're bowing to the sun in the east. And he said to them, 
he said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do detestable things that they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Why? Because they've turned to other gods. They're worshiping the sun. The beauty of creation instead of the creator himself. Or Romans 1, verse 25. says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. This happens all the time in our culture. And it can quickly bleed into your life if you're not careful. To say, no, there's no other gods. I will worship the creator of this beauty. But not this thing itself. What about other spiritual powers? Witchcraft has now at least a million and a half practicing witches in the United States. Tarot card readings, signs, astrology. The astrology industry has grown by $10 billion between 2018 and 2021. You know what was happening during that? COVID. What should we do? Maybe astrology has the answers. Where will we turn? Who will rescue us? Who will provide? How will we live? How will we survive? More common, though, for us, I think, than those things and the spiritual things, which, by the way, those things are dangerous. Don't mess around with Ouija boards. Don't mess around with dark witchcraft stuff. It's real. It's not that it's not real. It's real. That's why God says... Don't go there. I'm the one and the greatest. That is dangerous to you. But the things maybe that are more common to us are whatever becomes our functional God to rescue us, to give us enough. The tests of the wilderness. Can I trust God? Will he be enough for me? Will I have enough? Am I enough? Am I good enough? Those things. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in that is really your God so maybe to get it practical into your life would be to say this what does your heart cling to in tough times who do you confide in or talk to do you, do you pray and talk to God or you just talk to everybody else and don't go to God in whatever circumstances life brings, bad or good, is God enough for you? Is God enough? Right? Those might be indicators to let you know whether or not you are trusting in other gods, serving other gods, instead of the one true God. This theme of enough runs throughout the scriptures. It's, it's a theme in the wilderness testings, that they are going through, okay, in, in Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7, and 8, and, and on. Is it enough? Is God enough? Is he going to be enough for me? But it goes beyond that. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. In the garden, when Adam and Eve are asking the same question, is God enough? Because the serpent comes, the evil one comes, and whispers in their ear and says, hey, are you sure that God said that? I mean, why can't you eat from this tree? Has he really given you enough? Why not this tree too? Don't you want to know everything like God? Don't you want to be like God yourself, deciding right from wrong and good from evil? Is God really enough? And Adam and Eve, having FOMO, decide God's not enough and want to taste the fruit. 
which they do because they chose to follow another God in that moment, to listen to the voice of another. And it's impacted all of humanity. I hope you're thinking, wow, God is great. God is the one, the one true God that demands my loyalty, and I need to change my ways. I need to follow him. I hope you're thinking that. I hope you're always thinking that, that that's going through the rhythms of your life. God, how do I trust you? How do I find you to be enough? And if you're thinking, great, I'm going to do that. I'm going to apply that to my life right now, and I'm going to be, begin living for God and get this good life. Then pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Because you can't have the good life without the good news. You can't go directly from, here's what God demands, so now I'm going to try harder to do it and expect it to work if you skip redemption. Right? And this goes back to what we talked about last week and how we look at the law, which you can listen to. I'm not going back over that. So God commands these things because it reveals his character. But second point today is that conviction that comes about. When we hear that, we need to let that conviction lead you to the good news. Where do we see the good news? God chose them to be his treasured possession. Now we're going to go back into Deuteronomy, so you're going to have to do some work with me. But I'll put it on the screen for you. But if you want to go in your Bible and underline some things, you can do that too. God chose them to be his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Know where it says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. This is romantic love language. God is saying, you are the one I'm coming after. I love you. And I want you to be mine. God chooses them to be his treasured possession. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He liberates them to follow him in forming a new way of life, of living in love. That political and religious freedom that Israel experienced foreshadows the eternal freedom that we have in Christ through the redemption of Jesus. You see, the law needs to lead you to redemption and then out of that, changing and shaping and ordering life that is good. Because if you miss the redemption of Christ, you don't have it. Because the two truths in the redemption of Christ are this, that Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live and he died the perfect sacrifice, suffering, punishment that you deserve. Let me show you something that I think is pretty cool and I hope you do too in the Bible about Jesus living the life that you could never live related to no other gods. Remember we said, okay, the command is no other gods that where are the people, they're in, coming out of the wilderness, getting to enter the promised land. They remember the lessons of the wilderness. Am I going to trust God? Is he enough? Is the manna from heaven going to be bread enough for me for the day? Anybody else you know spend time in a wilderness in the New Testament? His name begins with J, ends with an S, and has Isa in the middle of it. Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. 
right? Look at Matthew 4, 4 with me. Jesus answered when he's being tempted by the evil one. It's written, men shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where do you think that verse comes from? I won't keep you in suspense. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Right after this, Moses is talking to the people and he says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is Jesus saying when Israel fails their tests in the wilderness and Jesus is in the wilderness? Does he fail the test? No. He says, I will live the test perfectly. We don't live on bread alone. I'm not going to turn those stones to bread because we live by trusting the word of the Lord that should be in our mouths, that should be ingested in us, that we know. Or Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Okay, this is the warning as they're entering Canaan. Jesus, in Matthew 4.10, in the temptation, the third temptation is, the, the, uh, Satan says to him, takes him to this high point, says, look here, I'll give you all these kingdoms, you can have all the power. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the wilderness wanderings in which the people failed, and I won't fail, and I will perfectly fulfill and keep everything because I am the one, the true, the Messiah, the living one, the great one that lived in your place, living the life you could never perfectly live. Saying, yes, God is enough. I don't need your food. Even though he was starving for 40 days. Saying, no, I'm not giving up. I'm not going after that kind of control and power. I already have that, and that's not the right way to use power. Jesus has a personal relationship with his Father, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, yet not my will be done, your will be done. He's in the battle, and he knows, and he sees what's before him, and he's like, this is going to be costly. The suffering that I am going to have to endure is going to be costly. Yet not what I want to do right now, but Father, according to your will, what we have planned, this is what I will do. He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he died as the perfect sacrifice, suffering the just punishment that you deserve. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doubting whether God was really enough, and they chose to make their own truth to be their own God, and they brought the curse on all of us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't doubt that his Father is good enough. He doesn't change the plan or make his own truth. He's willing to hang on the tree and become the curse for all of us. Do you see what Jesus does? Do you see the redemption that God says through the story of the Bible? This is what I'm doing. I'm the one who saves. I am the one who rescues, and that's why you must trust me. Because you can't do this yourself. Have you let the full weight of the law lead you to the forgiveness and freedom in Jesus? If not, maybe then make today that day. Say, okay, God, I, I, I try to be good. I, there's no way I can totally do this. Make today be the day that you call out in God. Call out in faith. To God. But I don't have it. You do. You're the Savior. Rescue me.
be enough for me. Lead my life in love and goodness. I once learned uh, a way to remember faith as an acronym, forsaking all, I trust him. That's what God's asking, all of your loyalty, all of your heart, forsaking all, I trust him. Will you do that? Because God takes your punishment, he covers your shame, he removes your guilt, and he says, I know you personally. I always have. And I still love you. That's some kind of power. And that kind of power, that kind of good news empowers you for the good life, which is the third point, last point here. Good news empowers you for the good life. And quickly, it's this. You're forgiven. Okay, so I'm not guilty. Beautiful. You're set free. You're not oppressed by some evil dictator and, and power to hold you down. God has given you the get out of jail free card, liberating you to now return to the way that you were designed to live, which he gives us instructions for to say, this is your new direction. This is your new compass heading. You're going this way, right? The light to our path. By the way, I got a plug. There's a Sunday school class happening. I don't know if you know this. It's right after this. You should stay for it. It's called Habits of the Household. Habits of the Household is trying to help families, parents, and grandparents intentionally shape and order life in intentional ways so that we live not having other gods. We live with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind by what we do, our heart, our will, and our choices, and by how our bodies and minds work and what we're going to think about going through the rhythms of life. Go to it. But not only are you forgiven and set free, but you now have the fuel to follow Jesus. Because the law, the Ten Commandments, aren't your power source. They're simply a prescription of, here's things that are helpful, that will shape life in good ways. The power source is the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit. And you are filled with the Spirit that is greater than any other power, so that you can love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, in everything with your total being with total loyalty. That doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. It means you're going to walk with God and learn those lessons again and again. Oh, yeah, yeah, God, I didn't really trust you very well that time, did I? Man, I'm so glad you know me personally and love me. And next time, help me to see that, that I'll, that I'll trust you through this, that I'll love you over all other things that I want to pursue or chase after. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, of the 101 things that I have to do each day, this is what it looks like to, to serve God and, and not have any other gods. Of the 101 things I have to do each day will all be approached as ventures of loving service to God, and I shall do the best I can in everything for his sake. The Spirit gives me new energy for all these tasks and relationships. Self-absorbed resentments dissolve. Zest for life, happiness in doing things, and love for others all grow great when God comes first. What does it look like then to have life when you're following God, when, when God is your only God, to have life ordered out? What would that look like? It looks like 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. The rest of the Ten Commandments. That's what it looks like. Charles Spurgeon started there today. Interesting, we kind of end with a reference he makes to a hymnist, John Barrage, an English hymnist and revivalist, he says this, I'll put these words on the screen, run John and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands, but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. That's what you need to know. 
the gospel, the good news, and the spirit-filled life that enables you to live in that way. So remember this, Red Bull doesn't give you wings. That, that's a new slogan. They stole it straight from the English hymnals. I have no idea if they did that. The gospel gives you wings. Here's takeaway questions for you, and then I'm going to pray. First takeaway question is, does my heart cling to God? Does my heart cling to God? Is Christ enough for me? And do I see God simply as a useful app or as something gloriously beautiful? God has to become more than useful to you. He has to be beautiful. Because when you move from useful to beautiful, you know what happens? You begin to worship. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be followers of you, to know that you are enough and that in all ways we can trust you and live life for you. I pray that you would give us the strength to do this by the power of your spirit, to know that we will never do this perfectly this side of heaven, but that you, in fact, do empower us to actually make real change in life. Give us, give us your strength to make the changes we need to make. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.